Okay. See, but I but, think this scale's completely wrong. I mean, to me, the moderates are the radicals. You know what I mean? And they're they're not. I don't know. You know because they're the ones who are just the most like denying everything the hell that's going on. Oh, okay. I mean, that's on that level. Yeah, on that level, they're completely radical. The left, to me, is completely moderate. They sort of see what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Hey, there's climate change. We might actually have to do yeah. something. Wouldn't, and if right. a certain thing in climate change, because we've been waiting for right. so long, we have to do things that look radical. Actually, they're not. Actually, they're sort of reasonable, but yeah. we got to do them. But it's to the radical moderate. It's to the ra- radical. I would say the radical moderates who are going like. Oh no, we can't do you know yeah. we can't yeah. do yeah. nothing. Yeah. Oh no, my God! And so know. you can't so. have the comedy I want because everybody thinks it has to be about them and their needs, and and their uh, particular worldview needs to be acknowledged as how incredibly fucking special it is. And that's that's the the radical moderates that you're talking about, or the left. See, left. That's not no, the left not, at all. Yeah, that, that, no, the know, moderates have the have the me position. Look, climate change. I like climate change. It's a, a great an issue. Yeah, climate change is a good example. That it's it's reality, right? Yeah. Are we going? Is anyone going to argue that it's not reality, right? So I mean, even it's the acknowledging cli- reality. It doesn't mean that I want my world as a radical left person who wants climate change acknowledged. It's yeah. not like. Uh, it's my particular way. I say we need to acknowledge it yeah. and start looking at ways and we can mitigate it because we are going to buy in 30 or 40 years, life will change as we know it on earth. It yeah. will. We better do something. 100%. I don't see what's, you know, to me, that's not like I want my own reality acknowledged. I want reality acknowledged. Same right. thing with income inequity, right? Yeah. I mean, we can all say the rich are, have now gotten astonishingly rich. And the poor and the little class are getting poorer and poorer. Reality. We're getting loose. So let's go. Let's let let us. Do you want to talk? In, let's let's go into the, uh, well, no. the appeal. Well, no. Well, no. well, we can get to the, we can do like that as like a plug at the end. I guess I was going to start the, at the top of the show with that, but I think what I want to do is direct us to on a similar line of thinking to what happened to the venue that the Gold Dust Orphans were using in the Fenway, because as we've discussed uh, for however many minutes we were talking there about the the mindset that is looking always to capitalize on land and you know all that kind of stuff all of the essential resources i heard recently that something like 60 percent of all assets is like like financial assets is in land right now or something like that and we've gone through a period of immense financialization of housing of uh urban landscape or uh, of uh, urban real estate and all that kind of stuff in a way which has fundamentally changed our politics and the way we social we order ourselves in cities which are the where everybody's going to the main drivers and engines for most economies these days or at least 21st century economies and it's the developer who is a fundamentally reactionary character i think because their entire job is to extract social wealth you know the wealth that is created by land uh and turn into private capital 
and to get the government and the org and the people that live there out of the way as fast and cheaply as possible so that they can move in and make an immense profit by collecting rents, essentially doing nothing. And uh, there was a piece in the Arts Views recently about the closing down of the Machine uh, nightclub, which is, uh, if you know the area, down by the Fenway, which is a really, really, really famous and historical gay club in Boston that is um, one of the older ones, but it's also one of many that have been shut down uh, and are closing up their doors for, uh, that has been happening over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, probably in the Boston area. Um, the Gold Dust Orphans, who are they, Bill? Uh, well, they're a, you know, they're a gay drag troupe, a comic troupe that's been been around for decades, led by uh, Ryan Landry. Um, and they, you know, I mean, they're well regarded. They've done a, you know, they've been almost a fixture. Uh, they've been at the machine for many years. Uh, they have an avid audience. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's an audience, a gay audience, often an audience of people who live in the area and know about them. Well, because also it's Back Bay, Fenway, that whole area has been, you know, a, a gay neighborhood in Boston for a long time. And so... Part of the reason why that area has also been gentrified and you know well, now that it's gen- up in value. now that it's gentrified, yeah. then the the problem is is that the that the gay theater, right, uh, the Gold Dust Orphans is being pushed out, right, um, and it's not like the developer who comes from England is uninterested in having a theater space. Apparently, they are interested in having a theater right. space, but it sounds like, and this is where I disagree a little bit. It's I think it's the government and the developer together, right? In this case, the city of Boston. That seems to be going, well, we do want something there. Mm-hmm. We want theater there. But I think my f- suspicion is, and that's why they're getting rid of the Gold Dust Orphans, is that they want something that's going to be more homogenized, bland, corporate. Mm-hmm. You know, my conjecture is they'd love to have something like, uh, you know, Blue Man Group or something like The Donkey Show, which has been playing, you know, on in, a, in uh, Harvard Square for many years. So do you envision a Boston where Blue Man Group not only plays twice a day in the theater district, but they play four times a day at two locations? Yes, I, I, there, <laughs> oh, dear God. There is a corporate mindset that, that whose idea of theater is basically, in, you know, um, our entertain, entertainment events, mm-hmm. not really theater. Um, and that it basically speaks to tourists or speaks to people who are visiting. You know, they're going to the Red. The Fenway is also the Red Sox area. They build up a lot of, you know, sort of restaurants there and so forth. So it is is taking on a sort of mall slash amusement park mm-hmm. sort of corporate mentality. And they want theater that will the kind of theater that will fit comfortably into that so that people will go and will spend money. And that's not, you know, and that's not a gay theater, the right. gay theater, drag gay theater which in some ways has been critical in some of its spoofing of, uh, you know, corporate mentality of, you know, conventional, you know, conventional thought and conventional behavior. That's not what they want. They want something silly. They want something apolitical. They want something. Blue Man Group is a great example. Or or if it does continue to have some sort of queer aesthetic with it, it's a queer aesthetic that can be easily uh, uh, whitewashed, so to speak. Put into a very broad, like bland, popular format. No, it'll be there. You know, uh, you can feel so good. Oh, I'm so enlightened because I sat through that gay show and I didn't feel nauseated or disgusted in any way. I am woke. I am woke. The conservative audiences who watch a show like uh, Modern Family and don't mind that the there's a gay couple on it or something like that. Well, those those shows are developed in that way right. to become bland and innocuous, so that you know the, the, the conservative and liberals can sit together and go, well, this isn't so, you know, this is right. perfectly acceptable. <laughs> this is completely fine. So there's nothing challenging. Uh, if you see theater as things that are doing things that are challenging, that are raising questions about the world we live in, 
that seems to be not what we will see what theater you know replaces what company replaces uh, mm -hmm. gold dust orphans but my feeling is it's going to be something really bland so on the one hand there's this talk about oh boston's interested in its immigrant communities it's interested in it's sort of dealing with you know sort of people that are doing theater outside of the mainstream outside of the white bread but now you really see what's going on that um, that that this, the proclamations of dealing with you know individuality or dealing with ethnicity, when push comes to shove, right, and the money is there, then what's going to be put in the theater certainly that's going to be put in is going to be sort of bland corporate homogenized theater that's going to appeal to a broad audience and not going to be. I mean, why not do a, You could put in a, a theater dedicated to Vietnamese culture there or to Chinese culture there, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what's going, I assure you, that is not what is going to happen. Right, and there's, there's, a, there's a really strong and established Chinese community down by the, the Fenway and the Back Bay area and stuff and have been there for a long time, but that's probably not what's gonna happen. Just to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of a developer's line of thinking, the development company is something called Scape, which I imagine is, uh, supposed to be landscape or cityscape or any kind of scape some or sort of escape or escape you know from reality <laughs> or something like that so the ceo andrew flynn told uh, national real estate one of our top competitors actually in the magazine industry uh that quote we're very pleased to have planted our flag here in boston we think that our brand is very well aligned with boston and a lot of the core principles that boston has really exhibited in recent years including a real spirit of innovation and entrepreneurism and a deep knowledge economy. So, so if that's what the... Uh... I hate those shallow knowledge economies. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Where you don't want a shallow about, like, knowledge you know, economy. Bread and shoes and baseball. And... So that gives you an idea of the way a developer thinks. And obviously that's, you know, PR speak and, you know, communications. And it's also what well, I would argue is the way that the government thinks too. In other words, Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. being, it was invited in or it is, it's, you know, the government is cooperating with this. And is putting oh, up yeah, a sort yeah. of a, the, the city of Boston is putting up a sort of a fig leaf where there's going to be discussions yeah. about well you know who's going to be in this theater. Well, as Bob Israel in the piece is Bob Israel right right, right. Yeah. as Bob Bob Israel says in the piece, um, Landry said that they were surprised that the developer was not opposed to the idea of having some sort of theater space as part of the development because if it's something that they can make money from or if they can get some sort of tax rebate on or if it's something that they can give up without actually sacrificing any profit a uh, developer is more than happy to say, well, okay, let's talk about it. So, but in that process of opening up negotiations with the developer, other community groups got wind of the development and started showing up and wanting more stuff. And so as soon as you ask the capitalists to sacrifice even a little bit, uh, then they say, well, no, we'll probably, the whole thing will fall apart because, you know, you, you, you greedy people down there on the, you know, on the, on, uh, walking close to the earth. Are, um, are are really just going to cut into our returns. And, I mean, I would also argue that, you know? argue again about the government that you know um, the government talks about preserving history or tradition, but it's quite obvious that they are not interested in preserving the tradition of having the gold dust orphans there. Right? <laughs> right. They're interested in maybe putting up a plaque or maybe sure. occasionally having a gay show there. Right. But that's not really you know they they're they're going to use this as an occasion or sell you know, tickets on the uh, yeah I mean on the ferry down to Provincetown. I mean Ryan wrote in a, com a comment and it's just sort of like saying well this is you know we're just getting you know we're just getting kicked out here and uh, and the point is like well who's defending history who's tr defending tradition who's defending the theater that's there. And apparently the theater community could care less 
because I haven't heard any peeps from them. Mm -hmm. They seem perfectly happy to have corporate theater moving in whenever possible. Um, and uh, the, sit the city doesn't seem to really be caring about preserving this particular kind of history. They're interested in, in, in getting is, you know, how much money, how much revenue can be generated by uh, the theater that comes in. And of course, the developer could care less. So, you know, on the one hand, there's some talk about, this is sort of the contradiction of the hypocrisy, there's some talk about diversity and the city's interest in the arts. We want to hear, we want to, how many times you hear the cliche, we want to hear from all these different voices. We want different voices present in our stages. But when push comes to shove, those voices, you know, unless they generate enough income are, are kicked off. And this is a good example. This is a good example of that. And the fact that it's being accepted with such passivity in the theater community by the critical community. I mean, I'm not sure who wrote on this. Essentially, Bob heard from Ryan saying, hey, we're getting kicked out of here. We don't have a future. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, write something on it, Bob. I mean, you know, talk to him, find out what's going on. Um, you know, I mean, and, and we report on it and, you know, nothing is, you know, the city says that oh, we're going to be having, you know, okay, send in your suggestions in our suggestion box. And, you know, you know where that's going to lead. Um, because the history is rapidly changing to be a sort of non-history, the, the non-history of sort of, yeah. you know, homo you know, I mean, what history does Blue Man Group have? Yeah. There is no history. It's only the amount of money it manages to generate the decades it's been here. Um, and one interesting thing about Blue Man Group is that it is not a union show, mm -hmm. which is one which is up the enormous amount of money that the the, the act generates. And it I mean, employs a ton of people. It, it 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 brings in a lot of people who get put on the blue goo yeah. and do the stuff. But apparently, early on, it was considered to be a circus act or a sort of a vaudeville, you know, sort of a circus vaudeville act. Thus, it did not fit under equity rules. Hmm. So that's one reason why it made it really, really, really uh, uh, inviting. For developers to keep on because they don't need to pay them equity. They don't have to pay the, the you know, they can just have, it's like Uber. They can just keep switching people in and out. Yep. And they don't necessarily have to pay what they would pay union workers. Boston is really kind of, I think, one of the most, uh, it's like kind of the poster child for homogenization, getting rid of history or commodifying history. You know, ever since... I remember, what was it? It was um, all the American cities getting shitty and the only like great one left is Chicago when he went to go cover the, um, the DNC in, in 68. He said, Boston is all just urban renewal. And that was in 1968. That was Mailer. And LA in, is a city whose architecture was uh, created by TV. Right. Yeah. You know, and and so for more than, <laughs> more than half a century, Boston has been known as a place where they just demolish, move out, you know, the populations that aren't bringing in all the money and put something new there and, you know, put up a plaque and say, we really appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, I can't disagree. I mean, with you've that, been you writing know. about this for a really long time. I've been writing for about, I mean, the, it's just the hypocrisy has grown. I mean, we have more interest in diversity now because it's a very much of a, you know, it's a call, it's a, a cause of concern for and yet many. The average black family in Boston has a net worth of $8. Yeah. But nothing really in terms of actually cultivating, you know, art in these communities right. and actually hearing these voices. Only when it, you know, when, when, you know, when corporate money is sort of behind it and it hears the kind of thing it wants to hear, yeah. that's when you might hear from those voices. But in something like what's going on in the Fenway, given the amusement park mall-like atmosphere, you know, the theater they want is going to be something that's going to be really sort of homogenized and bland. We're not going to be hearing any, you know, we're not going to be hearing any any distinct voices. And that, and that I think, is the, the real hypocrisy. You know, I mean, suddenly I hear more than ever that we have to embrace 
the different communities that make up the city. But it seems to me that we seem to be racing faster and faster to eradicate, you know, I mean, the, this, the individual voices and theatrical voices that we have here. So. So now we can talk about. Um, <clears throat> you have anything to add? You're unusually quiet. Have I have I depressed uh, you today? I just I... notice how like <laughs> this. Well, I mean, some of it I feel like is probably just due to, um, just changes in the culture in the sense of like I remember there was a big record store, uh, right by downtown, and right by Newbury Street. There was a Tower Records yeah, I used to yeah. go to all the time. I vaguely remembered it until my friend pointed it out. I mean, that was one of the things, because um, I'm from the suburbs. I mean, I'm not really from Boston from Boston. Now I am because I spent some time here. But, like, that was the big appeal of Boston for me and for my friends is, like, to be able to go in town and, like, buy tapes and buy bootleg CDs and to, like, you know, go to record stores. I still love record stores. I will always love record stores. And um, we'd still have quite a few around. And I just remember the Tower Records now is, a, I think it's a TJ Maxx. I was just around there the other day. Uh, or a Virgin Megastore or something like that. And um, so I see that, and I just, I see how the city itself is gentrifying like crazy. And it's it's just, a, it's a disgrace in a lot of ways. And like, I don't feel especially extra sad just because I'm leaving it. I've been feeling this way for a long time. Like, liberal social values, hooray, hooray. And in the meantime, it's just tech money is just going to blow this place to smithereens. Yeah, and the unions will keep voting people like Marty Walsh into office and shit, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a blue-collar veneer that, that, that legitimizes all this bullshit. I mean, I, I, I don't have anything to add except I will add that it seems to me that it's not just obliterating things, but things that should offer some sort of counter to what's going on are sort of corporatizing. So it used to be you'd have the big theaters. They were sort of the corporate feel-good escapist. But now even in the medium-sized theaters, you see them branding like crazy, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're playing the same game. Basically, the techniques used by the, you know, by the, you know, by the larger theaters to brand, the idea of branding, is now being sold down the line. So you even got little tiny holes-in-the-wall theaters that, you would, that used to be sort of radical or different or something um, that are basically are, are marketing as if, you know, with the lessons that they've learned from the big boys, right? Yeah. So that, I think, is what's also, you know, sort of, um, you know, to me, sort of alarming or troubling. It's that what used to be the sort of small underground counter economy, right? That we, not just the tower records, but the little record stores or yeah. the little bookstores or the little theaters, you know? Suddenly it's like, oh my God, they're all, they all have, you know, they're all interested in branding and they're all interested in marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like they've caught the disease. And so even what looks like it's offering some sort of an alternative is really only one, you know, it's only looking for its opportunity to hit the big time mm -hmm. by using some of the branding techniques. I mean, um, Boston Foundation, it's called Catch a Fire, but it's a program where basically invite people you know, to learn, you know, you can work with them to learn some of the, you know, you can learn how to, you know, raise money better. You know, you can learn how to get a board better. You can learn how to become more, basically how to make more money, generate more income yep. by yeah. using the techniques that have been used. And they're already probably two or three light years ahead. So you're only getting the old stuff, right? That's what they're selling. And you don't have the resources to do what the big boys are doing. But you see the problem there. It's just sort of like they're, they're not, just trying to reinvent the wheel they're being given away right mm -hmm. to to you know to use the wheel that they have and the way the techniques they're being they're being taught 
or essentially comes from all the corporate big boys. <laughs> a uh, a small debate that occurred in the pages of the Arts Fuse recently. <laughs> uh, sticking with theater, uh, moving up, you know, from you know the uh, the Gold Dust Orphans to what I what is essentially the Boston major Boston theater, the Huntington Theater Group. Uh, they now are running uh, the play Indecent, which is from Paula Vogel who you may know as the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, playwright of uh, How I Learned to Drive. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't read that or seen it. I have seen it, and it's it's a good play. That you heard it here I'm first. interested. <laughs> I, was, I was very close to seeing it, and I, didn't, I wasn't able to get away that night, but uh, my friend saw it, and she loved it. Wait, Indecent or How I Learned to Drive? Indecent. You're talking about How I Learned to Drive. I'm talking about How I Learned to Drive. I'm sorry. Oh, How I Learned to Drive is a really good play. I heard that's a good... I'm sorry, you mentioned that title. Indecent, I have not seen the Huntington production. I did see the PBS version, essentially, of the Broadway production. And I, so I have see, I'm familiar with it from that. But so we had a positive review and we had <laughs> a negative review. Yes. And, uh, In true Arts Fuse fashion. Right. And I love it. I mm -hmm. loved it. You can you can get some 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 nice cross talk here at the Arts Fuse sometimes. Um, so the positive review was written by Bob Israel. So a little bit of background on what the play Indecent is about. It's kind of a um, a riff on uh, a forgotten play from 1907 by Sholem Ash called God of Vengeance. Uh, an, another play that probably very few people have actually seen or read. Um, I, I mean, I've read the play and. Uh, an early English translation. There's also an attempt at the Williamstown Theater Company. Donald Margulis, a playwright who taught at Yale, I don't know if he's teaching any longer, did a version of it, which was done, I think, in 2006 or seven. Um, and so it's a play that's been really invited people. It is sort of not done a lot, but because it deals with a very negative view of Jews, in this case, you know, observant Jews, on, on one floor and on the bottom floor that they own, they run a whorehouse, right? And so the, and they have a daughter who they are striving to keep pure away from the, the, the decadence from which they're making money from the prostitutes. And of course, she falls in love. This is one of the plots, not all, one subplot. She falls in love with one of the prostitutes. Right. And there is an early lesbian love scene between right. them, which became notorious, controversial, and made the play when it was first produced in the turn of the century, um, you know, oh, wow. um, very popular. And it was done in cities around Europe to the point where it finally came to, it finally came to New York. But it had a um, uh, both blasphemy charge against it, but yes. also a um, it was banned. It was censored. By, uh, it was censored when it came to New York. Yeah. It was censored, and um, Paula Vogel. I'm not quite sure why how why the playwright allowed it to be censored censored. In New York, she creates, I don't know how factual it is, she said that Salamash somehow went back to the old country, went back to Eastern Europe, was in the early, late teens or maybe early 20s, and was so amazed, you know, so horrified by what he saw was happening to the Jews that it placed him in some sort of weird mindset where he didn't seem to care. 
that the the piece had been censored when put on it in New York. Basically, mm -hmm. the lesbian love scene had been cut down. Mm -hmm. She doesn't really deal with the anti-Semitic tropes at all. I mean, given the fact that the father is thinks only, you know what I mean, is a complete hypocrite and thinks only about money. And it's all about, it's all about money. Um, but she doesn't seem to want to deal with the anti-Semitic trope. She's much more fascinated by the idea of Yiddish theater. Mm -hmm. um, well, lesbianism this is what, and, oh, go ahead. What Bob Israel says, he says this long one-act drama uh, breathes new life into the once thriving Yiddish theater by presenting scenes from an early 20th century Yiddish play, The God of Vendance, by uh, the Polish playwright Sholem Ash. We are reintroduced to this theatrical genre by learning of a play that once enjoyed successful runs mm -hmm. throughout Europe and Russia before making its New York premiere, where it was summarily banned in 1923. Mm -hmm. uh, Vogel explores how Ash's play fits into the canon of literary works produced from this turbulent era, namely plays by Eugene O'Neill, and then, of course, suggested but not mentioned literary works of James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, who tackled using unexpurgated language themes of human sexuality, among other topics. So I think bringing things back from the 20s into the present day is actually timely for a lot of different reasons, both in terms of like wealth inequality, uh, you know, our new mode of sort of public decency and the political correctness of our times, the homogenization of critical culture. Uh, is an interesting and good thing to do. But as you say, she doesn't seem to deal with uh, some of the more problematic elements of the play. Well, I mean, reading the play itself, and I saw the, um, and also having seen the adaptation done in 2007, um, it's sort of unworkable. It's, I mean, to, to compare this play with like Joyce or F. Scott Fitzgerald, <laughs> I mean, I love you, Bob, but I think, you know, I mean, we're, we're really stretching it there. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did create this sort of lesbian love scene, and that's really what I think Paula Vogel is fascinated by, you know, in the context of Yiddish theater. But as a play, it's almost unworkable. It's like, you know, really 19th century pot-boiling melodrama. Um, and at its worst, with a bunch of subplots that, you know, don't, don't really all fit together. So it's sort of unplayable. So what she's done is she's found an element in it, right, in this 20s play that was censored, which is about Yiddish theater dealing with lesbianism right. and basically idealizing the lesbian. You know, that's, you know, sort of like saying this is the epitomizes the, the art, the adventure of Yiddish theater. She even creates a character, sort of an, a, a sort of everyman Jew, as, as Jerry puts it. Who uh, you know who's, who who is throughout most of the play and is present at most of the productions of uh, of the the God of Vengeance who sort of adores that adores the play and adores that adores that scene. So the play itself is pretty is somewhat antiquated. To me, it's a play about dirty laundry, right? And in the 1920s, right, Jews, anti-Semitism, uh, and lesbianism was considered in New York to be you know, I mean, absolutely unspeakable. And they do have a rabbi in, in Indecent. They have a rabbi come on to, and denouncing it for its, its sexual sin. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is not what we should see. Um, but the problem for me with the play now is that, of course, we're all congratulating ourselves for being right. very liberated. You, you couldn't right? possibly consider a lesbian sex scene, even in live theater or something, to be controversial. It's something to be controversial. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it basically tells the audience, well, I would, you know, of course, how great this is. Right. Because, it, you know, in the 20s, how, how silly, how stupid are they? You know what I mean? To possibly, you know, not to be right. liberal enough to realize lesbianism. To me... Um, my answer to that is that it would have been a lot more um, gutsy if you took dirty laundry that remains dirty, right? 
So the lesbian, now maybe the anti-Semitism could have had a little bit of a, you know, the self-hatred or whatever. That might have had some shock value or might have made people think a bit. Yeah. But um, when uh, you do that these days, I think of like the work of Ellie Valley, the cartoonist who um, he's a Jewish guy who uses um, like ironically, obviously, like Jewish stereotypes to make these sort of like, uh, uh, I mean, every one of his cartoons is somewhat grotesque. But, you know, if you make a grotesque cartoon of a Jewish character, you know, you have to be anti-Semitic or something. But, you know, as as a Jew, Ellie Valley says, no, I'm doing this to expose other types of hypocrisy and, you know, contemporary culture. Um, he, he got in a controversy recently with um, John McCain's daughter. Uh, is it Meghan McCain? Meghan McCain, yeah. yeah. Who became the, mm-hmm. the face of uh, uh, decrying anti-Semitism <laughs> after the uh, 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 recent attacks against other uh, Jews. And then, of course, the Ilhan Omar thing about... Yeah. Um, and uh, the New York Times uh, political cartoon. I didn't see that one. Yeah. There was a political cartoon that came out. Right, right. Yahoo yeah. is a dog leading the blind Trump, uh, whatever. Yeah, Star of David thing. And Meghan McCain also got into a big uh, discussion, a, a testy discussion on that with uh, Seth Meyers as well. But is it not ridiculous that Meghan McCain is the face of, you know, anti-anti-Semitism? <laughs> There's something about the whole, I will know no peace so long as unpleasant language is being uttered, sir. That is a little disingenuous, I think. Um, a little. Yeah. I mean, and, I would I would bring up something something I put noise complaint. Yeah. As a good example of dirty laundry that remains dirty. Sure. Um, you know, my grandmother. I was a kid at home in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, and my my grandmother, my bubby, basically was going to the local supermarket to protest Portnoy's complaint. Sure. She and Hadassah. We're walking around with signs saying, how dare someone write this about Jews? You know, a Jew writing this about Jews. I would argue that even though obviously it does not have the sort of um, kick that it had when it first came out in the 60s, it seems to me the Portnoy's complaint, even in its sort of, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's anarchistic, macho energy, you know, when Portnoy just has to bed the beautiful Israeli, you know, army woman, right, to score one. Um, seems to me to offer more, like a little more uh, challenge to contemporary audiences than something like Indecent, which is essentially just sort of a valentine, you know, to Yiddish theater and a valentine to, you know, to, to this, les- you know, to its scene of lesbian love um, in which no one is really who would, who would in any way object to that, right? I mean, it's all yeah. very, it all seems to be very sort of sentimental to me and all very easy well something like Portnoy's complaint or some of the cartoons you're talking about mm-hmm. have more kick yeah because they actually might make people think sure go hmm you know yeah. can we get away with this now or what is this saying about jews or whatever I, I i'm preparing a piece about Portnoy's complaint because it's his 50 years anniversary this year it came out in 1969 portnoy is 50 now and uh i find it really fascinating because uh i read it probably in the aughts and I'm not Jewish at all or anything, but I absolutely related to Portnoy in particular ways, the way you would relate to a character. And, you know, maybe you've shared some of his life experiences. Maybe you have not, but you feel like you can relate to the fellow. And I laughed my ass off. I don't generally go to books for laughter. Um, I, I, that's just not usually my taste in reading. But I was crying with laughter. I loved it. And what was interesting to me is that I think... So that comes out in '69. It's a very hot button thing. Um, interesting that your that your bubby is, is bubby out, outraged by it, outraged. which I can understand. In fairness, I can see how that would piss somebody off. 
Um, well, his and, family was pissed because they were like, "How dare and you? His family how, was how pissed. dare you portray us like this?" To right? The whole yeah, no. I mean, that's yeah. what I mean by that's what I mean by dirty laundry. By dirty laundry. Yeah. The right, idea is that right, right, a right. Jew, you shouldn't tell people. We Jews right. have to put our best foot forward. Sure. Don't show them that. Don't you tell know the goyim mean. that we're sex. Don't freaks. tell the goyim yeah. that we're sex freaks. Don't yeah. tell the goyim that the father is a sort of ineffectual figure who's sitting basically on the toilet trying to go most of the day, and it's the the mother that runs the household. Exactly. Right. And so that is, so that, and, and apparently Cynthia Ozick said that he's being brave by airing the sturdy laundry. So that has a political uh, 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 impact in, the, in 69. And I think it's interesting to think of it as essentially the whole thing is a monologue, right? So it's very easy to sort of uh, juxtapose that with the stand-up comedy of, the, of Lenny Bruce and what's going to follow after that. Which is totally a lot of like the biggest stand-up comedians, especially in the '70s and '80s, were self-loathing, horny Jews who were constantly talking about how their like lives were so fucked up. Gary Shandling, Richard Lewis, on and on and on. And um, I, I think it's interesting how that maybe opened a space for that. And then um, the kind of gross-out comedies of the '90s that I grew up on, things like Wayne's World or like There's Something About Mary or all the Will Ferrell stuff, right? Which is all about like outrageous, the spooge is flying everywhere, right? And so um, American Pie is American more, Pie, a more uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, maybe perhaps iconic series that was about you know the, totally uh, about a hapless yeah. kid wanking to save his life, and um, so I can relate to that right um, in a sense because I've seen those kinds of movies and not for any other reason of any kind. So uh, so I so I I get really into that book, and then as time goes on. Especially now, since we're doing this huge cultural reevaluation, a la Me Too and male entitlement and so on, when you're and there's a certain kind of appeal that the book has for the uh, guy, the the lip the lit bro, which I would consider myself in some ways one, in the sense that like Portnoy makes a whole lot of really dirty literary jokes. The famous line is, "I am the Raskolnikov of jerking off," mm-hmm. which like. I'm sorry, but a certain kind of person, right, is going to really love that kind of joke. And so it it is a really funny joke. But the other part of it, too, is, and this is what I've been uh, thinking about as well, is the sense that, like, well, he is comparing himself to a criminal, to a murderer, who is in many ways, he has good size, but is essentially, you know, a bad person, an extremely bad guy. And so um, there is that sense of, you well, know, it's the having to always justify your actions for what it is that you actually want. And and how the more sure. you do that, the more you get deeper into shit. Yeah, exactly. Know? And thinking that, like, also his, his jerking off is a form of rebellion. Right. Right? So it's... Which, but it's actually things. quite innocent. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> right. It reinforces his helplessness right. because he's not actually doing anything. He's literally just pounding the pud. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's interesting now in the Me Too sense is that a guy, for a guy in the 60s, Jewish, no Jewish, whatever, to talk about his own, like, sexual frustrations and kind of what a hapless loser he is, is kind of radical and, 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 and really kind of revelatory. It pisses off Grandma Booby because it hits on some sensitive topics. Um, it's also its portrait of women, I think. And the be, portrait of women is, very is not at all And uh, the, the contemporary Rosie. answer, I suppose, is the marvelous Miss Maisel. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that show. We I, talked I've about heard it, um, of it. I have I think not we talked about it in the last episode. Probably. Um, Jewish woman 
she's uh, she goes and she basically does the, the the Lenny Bruce style comedy, but obviously much better because it's written in the twenty first century and has fifty sixty years of, of of comedic you know history to, to draw on and stuff. And she basically airs the dirty laundry of her of her fucked up Jewish life. Yeah. And she becomes a uh, stand-up comedian and very famous and uh, yeah. is friends with Lenny Bruce and all that kind of stuff. And she's the quintessential, like, whatever, Upper East Side, like, but, daughter of privilege, but she's also got this witty kind of girl-on-the-street quality. But, uh, yeah, she, she she loves to fuck, which is, you know... And, yeah, she and, she's, and, she's, and she's very proud of how good she is at it. Uh, how good she is at it and how much pleasure she takes yeah. in it. I, so I, I, I just want to add just quickly, yeah, so yeah. everything about Indecent, you know what I mean, which should be... We, could, you, we, we should be discussing that if it was of an interesting plan. Right, right. Should be talking about it was brave, or it's dealing with some sort of interesting sexual issues. That's not what right. it's about. In other words, it, it's it's playing it absolutely safe, which I think is the you know what I mean. Which I think is its problem. Which well, I think is partly what Jerry is is. If I out. can get back to actually Jerry's piece here, um, he writes the actress had hardly come on stage for the curtain call when the crowd rose on mass to their feet, cheering wildly for what the Globe's drama quit critic. Uh, you won't get as good of drama criticism in the Globe as you will in the arts, if he was just saying. Obviously. Uh, Dan O'Coin, is that how you say it? Dan O'Coin, yeah. yes. Uh, you can hear the size. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Dan O'Coin uh, labeled a transcendent, you won't ever forget theatrical experience. Uh, but Jerry found the play, though ambitious, disappointingly flat and obvious in Vogel's writing, and the production directed by Rebecca uh, Talkman. Uh, sentimental and sometimes manipulative uh, going in so far to say that in the case of a scene set in the Lutz ghetto the lineup of characters on the way to the concentration camps veered for Jerry close to Holocaust war. Yeah. Um, really just because the scene is they do the God of Vengeance play in uh, no, the, this, no, in the scene in the play it's they're lined up to go to the showers or they're in the concentration oh, okay. camp uh, a, a number of you know Yiddish actors, people who produ- who have done the play, mm. um, and then one of the characters, our everyday, our everyman Jew, yeah, fantasizes just, oh, yeah. that he sees the two that the two lesbian characters okay. of the yeah. play are in the line, and then they break out of the line, and it starts raining, and they start doing the scene. Um, and I think what Jerry's referring to, which I think is defensible, but we've had some people feel that it was over. It's a little heavy-handed. But you do have the juxtaposition of the concentration camp with sex, you know, because this this lesbian scene, which is this transcendent lesbian scene, is being done as they're waiting to be essentially the assumption is that they're being taken to the showers. Jerry so has that, a, that has a juxtaposition of it here. is a little is a little I, I don't know if I call it risky. Maybe she thought it was being risky, but it's it's open to the charge of of a Holocaust porn where you place such sexual material in the very place where I think that in the real world, if you read anyone who was actually there, that's the last thing that these people were thinking about. Jerry says, uh, nowhere is the place of God of Vengeance on a pedestal more glaring than with the infamous lesbian embrace. Vogel puts off and puts off, uh, Vogel puts off offering it to us, finally placing it in her queasy scene at the Lutz ghetto where the trapped Jews act out Ash's play with the Nazis looming outside, two barefoot young women, women in nightgowns prance about, smooch, and get wet under a sensuous rainstorm, water dripping down from behind the proscenium at the Huntington. Like, that's... I, I guess that's daring. 
but like it sounds maybe, pretty daring to me. Not maybe not in the right way. I don't. Well, there uh, yeah, was a Larry David uh, monologue that he did when he hosted Saturday Night Live, where he was like, "I'm gonna tell the worst joke I could think of," or something like that. And it's basically a guy hitting on another, hitting on a girl as their Holocaust uh, inmates or whatever. And he's all like, "So you want to uh, go out sometime? Really? Is is it the whole thing?" And like people were, I thought it was funny, but people were outraged at that that they thought it was kind of like just in, unbelievably poor taste that he would do that. I mean, I think it's best Aaron Applefeld, an Israeli writer who I knew years ago. I mean, he's unfortunately passed away a year or two ago. He refused, you know, he was, he was in a concentration, I believe it was in a concentration camp. And his, I think so too, yeah. His, his idea was just stay out of the camp. You know, you can lead the reader right up to the camp, but yeah. after that, let the reader just, you know, imagine how horrible it was rather than trying to create it. Sure. Um, I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule. I think it's a good guide to have because I do think that there has been some fiction or books that have been written that what took place in the camps. Yeah. Uh, this way for the gas, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, written by written by a pole is a, a, a collection, gr- of, short a collection stories. of stories which I think are brilliant and yeah. it's, it is right in the camp. But yeah. well, that's his, like one of the uh, one of the few really it really is great one of the ones. few exceptions. Martin Amos's um, the Zone of Interest, which is a Holocaust. Uh, concentration camp guard, direct whatever, falling in love with a, it's a love story where he's in love with her, and I mean I had, it was banned in Germany apparently, uh, and I have a lot of respect for Martin Amos. I was interested in the premise. Go for it if you're going to try to pull it off. Go ahead. And I thought the book was a disaster. Yeah, uh, but I, that's not necessarily because I would categorically eliminate the topic from being anything. Yeah, good my, my feeling is that you have the happen. problem of you know life is beautiful. You know the sort of like the yeah. uh, you know the concentration camp film in which you know somehow we're we're going to look at the bright side, and that's sort of what the scene felt like to me. It's like, oh, I'm in line to be obliterated and oh, I'm going to remember this, you know, this great lesbian scene, right? For the audience who's just, at, you know, they're not in line to go anywhere. They're going to be in line to get to their cars, mm. you know, when the show ends. Yeah. So it just felt to me a little gratuitous, you know what I mean? It sure. felt to me, I guess, risky, yeah. but it felt to me risky in a sort of ultimately sentimental well, not not in the Victor Frankl sort of not um, in not in the Victor Frankl or not, you know not in a way in which when that the audiences would be shocked. Mm-hmm. I think it's the opposite. The audience is there to be reassured. Oh well, art will continue. This great love, you know, this great you know this great lesbian scene somehow yeah. signifies the human spirit will endure, and yeah. and it leaves the horror and it leaves all that's going on at the concentration camp as essentially as background. Mm. To yeah. that, and that I found, you know, I would, I find questionable. So we're only allowed to read Primo Levi and Norman Finkelstein. That's, that's really my, well. I mean, they're both <laughs> they're both excellent. Although I, yeah, I mean, this way to the gas, ladies and gentlemen, uh, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, uh, yeah. is a br- really, really, the, really the Polish a, a highly, highly. now going to try and convince Bill and me who are not uh, watchers or fans or knowers of, of Game, Game of Thrones. Thrones. Matt is now going to try to convince us to watch Game of Thrones. Matt, you now have the floor. Okay, so um, to start off, I have never been a fantasy person 
swords are kind of goofy and, and dragons and all that bullshit has never really appealed to me. I thought I kind of wrote the show off because I was expecting it to be nothing but that. Actually, what t- what tips the scales in favor of actually sitting down to watch it, aside from everybody else saying it was really good, was reading Clive James's book on TV, which I reviewed for the Arts Fuse, which I really, really enjoyed. And I really respect Clive James. And I think he came at it right. He was like, look, I don't like swords. I'm not interested in fantasy stuff. But the show sucked him in, and it got me watching it. And then myself and my girlfriend uh, were both completely sucked into it. And what's interesting about Game of Thrones is that if you don't care about dragons, you don't care about swords, that's fine. What's most interesting is these characters that you start to uh, become emotionally involved with and the situations that they're in. And this is a show that does not necessarily... It's a little bit weird saying it now because we've gone several seasons into it now, but middle seasons, you definitely notice these very sharp plot turns that you don't expect and are pretty like challenging. You're not really thinking oh, it's the plot twist at 8.30 and we'll move along and they'll fall in love and we'll ride off into the sunset. No, there are definitely big switches that you don't see coming and that you don't expect and that keep you on the edge of your seat and that you start to see, oh my God, like this could really go in a whole other direction. Um, the dialogue is really strong. Um, the, um, the, the drama between the characters and what they are able to do, what, they are able to, what their strengths and weaknesses are, is very, very well defined. And they change very dramatically. And you get these interesting characters who intersect with one another and have no real reason for intersecting with one another, but get thrown together and then form these kind of unlikely partnerships. Um, characters that you despise in one season turn out to be uh, more redemptive later. Characters who are, appear good become evil. And they do a really masterful job of keeping that plot humming. And I'm not a plot person. I'm not the kind of person that needs to be given big, uh, splashy um, uh, climaxes and things like that. I want just like an interesting show that I can get my head around. And Game of Thrones totally won me over. I mean, the as my friend put it, which I think is, is pretty accurate, he's like, if you're not interested in the swords and the dragons, it's the political implications that become kind of the the draw because it's ultimately about it's not like who's going to sit on the iron throne the ultimately be the the king of everything is interesting and it's going to be the payoff for the people who've been watching the show but it's more about how these people with their different levels of skill are able to use that skill to get them higher or lower on the uh uh totem pole Like, there are characters who are very rugged and very strong and very tough, uh, male and female. It's actually a fairly progressive show in a lot of ways, in the sense that it's a macho world, it's a brutal world, it's a world where might makes right, but at the same time, the the idea of what might is, is not just the guy with the biggest muscles swinging the biggest sword. It can be the person who's smarter, the person who's more strategic, the person who's more um, uh, cunning and manipulative, and these are the things that sort of balance that. Uh, there are some a lot of strong women characters. There are, there are women characters who appear to be victims at first and then fight their way out of that and become actually um, very much dominant characters. And there are characters who are uh, who are male who show a lot more vulnerability than you expect from them. You see characters who are not supposed to be in these p- particular positions in a world this like rugged and nasty and brutish and short who actually manage to uh, really um, to rise. And I think that what happens with the show is what happens with all 
worthwhile shows, which is that it after a while it's not so much about the um, the world that's being built necessarily, uh, or even about like the what's at stake. I mean, I don't really care who's going to win the Iron Throne in the end. I, I kind of don't, but I am interested in whether or not these characters whose flaws I become accustomed to and whose strengths I become accustomed to is ultimately going to weigh out in the end. Right? There's a character um, who is defined in a lot of ways by his nobility. He will always do the right thing. And he is a good person. He's not a prig. It's just that he has this code of ethics that he absolutely wants to follow at all times. And what's interesting about the show is that generally you would expect a character like that to either be totally humiliated and thrown off and laughed at, or will be the noble savior who will come in and you know ride in on a cloud and solve everybody's problems. And we honestly don't know for a lot of the time that we're watching it whether or not his nobility is going to be ultimately to his benefit or not. Whether or not the fact that he will always do the right thing is going to actually you know, pan out for him or not. And whether or not somebody who believes themselves as a liberator is going to actually be a liberator or not. And so you see these kind of um, uh, moral contrasts. And then ultimately, these characters have more of a life in them than just the fact that they, you know, are fighting and screwing and swearing and uh, being, uh, you know, rugged. They have they have conflicts and they have weaknesses that become that become apparent over time, and and you see how that pans out in a in a I don't want to say political, but in a power in the sense of their relationship to power, which is ultimately not that far away from what a lot of good drama does. I don't know, Bill. It sounds like a television show to me. <laughs> it doesn't do it for me. It sounds like a TV show that sort of absorbed a lot of video game stuff. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Well, because with video games, it's not about character development. And in don't this let show, the gamers use it. What's that? Yeah, don't I mean, I think video games became more sophisticated. A lot of you know that there well, is character development. Yeah. In, well, I'm in talking about the, the ones you participate in. It's more no, no, no. Because in this sense, it's it's not that you're controlling the action. It's that you're constantly hoping that where the action's going to go is going to be uh, as interesting as the last thing that happens. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's quite suspenseful. I, I feel like it's probably... Now, I'm a TV junkie, so I will probably watch it eventually. And, I mean, the the way that the world is set up right now is it, we're designed to be hooked on television. You know, it's just the, the autoplay just keeps going and you just... It's 4 o'clock in the morning all of a sudden you don't know what happened. And uh, and you're sitting there like Portnoy in your own you know, in, in your own effluence. But uh, but I think I feel like like a lot of HBO shows, Game of Thrones is probably just overhyped softcore porn that is a poor approximation of what they the goal that they struck with uh, the Sopranos and the Wire. Every everything after the Sopranos and the Wire has been a version of Tony's of of the Sopranos and the Wire. I think. No, because. The Sopranos. Well, you just described some noble asshole. To me, it just sounds like, well, why would I watch that guy? Why can I? What I can watch Omar uh, from The Wire, who has his code, who, uh, yeah. like, 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 doesn't is not a savior, but acts tries to act according to his code, bends yeah. but doesn't break. Sometimes. And is a moral and character. Is, and then is uh, and is ultimately dispatched in a way that is completely uh, uh, consistent with the reality of you know Baltimore street sure. life. You know, sure. and. Uh, but with Game of Thrones, it's beyond the boobage, it's beyond the swords, it's beyond the uh, the the bullshit with the dragons. It's about characters trying to survive in a world that is ultimately defined by power, and what that power is going to be, what 
what strengths they have is going to be rewarded, whether or not the strengths that they have will be rewarded by the, the world around them. So, okay, maybe I can't so, outfight the competition, but can I outwit the competition? So, happy days. <laughs> Basically, it's a combination <laughs> of, like, Capital, happy days. Capitalist, sounds like capitalist competition to me, then, right? What's I mean, that? Capitalist competition. Yeah, right? sure. Words, they're, um, they're all entrepreneurs, and who's going to survive, and who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna win the most power? It's not entrepreneurship, and... though, because they don't, like, it's not that they don't, they don't accumulate wealth. It's more that will I, if everyone... Okay, if there's a power instability and anybody could try to grab that power vacuum at any time, like, how am I going to be able to manage that? So it's more like the fallout of the Iraq War. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it, or, or it's also, in some ways, I think there was a big scene in the last episode, not the big battle episode, but the one after it, that is torn out of every political conversation I've had for the past year, um, which is basically like, is it better to have the person who is... Is it better to have the person in power who doesn't want to be in power and is so moral that his morality makes him not want to be the ruler? Or is it better to have someone in power who wants to be in power, has learned how to be in power, and wants to use that power ostensibly for good? With all those things being somewhat ambiguous. Desiring, and that's a question people are asking themselves all the time. Desiring power is a, is like the first question I have for anybody that's in a position of power. Do yeah. You, do you want it? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then there are, I have to write them off completely. And that's fair. And that's fair. Right? <laughs> anybody that wants power is, 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 is wrong. Sure. But some people who want power also like know that in order for them to do the good thing they want to do, you've got to have power to do it. Otherwise, there's mm-hmm. a guy standing on a street corner. I think Bill's getting antsy over here. I am ready to talk so, about the spring <laughs> right. appeal. So, so uh, uh, Bill, are you con- are you convinced? I am not convinced. I am not convinced so. either. I, I'm, the but I'm, I'm not a TV junkie. I will watch some uh, news on on TV, and I occasionally watch an older film. But I've never really gotten into the sort of you know the yeah. golden age. I of never TV. expected myself to get. I mean, into I, I, I and I, and I'm not proud of that. I mean, I've not seen The Wire. Oh uh, really? Uh, Oh, you'd love The Wire. Uh, Breaking Bad, I saw maybe two or three episodes, and I lost interest. Uh, and so I, at Sopranos, I've seen episodes here and there. But again, I've never caught the fever, meaning I became Mad obsessed Man? or not Mad Men. No, I think I saw one or two episodes. Also, this and I, went, I don't see what I don't see what you know. It just doesn't. I'd rather go and read a book. But you know, for the record, though, this is not the golden age of TV. This is the era of prestige TV. The golden age of TV is the nineteen fifties and sixties. Oh, you're right. So we're now you're, in. You're correct. We're in prestige TV, uh, which is which is a Sid whole Caesar other, yeah. was the golden age of TV. Um, but yeah, so that ends the conclusion. Matt tries to convince us to watch Game of Thrones, <laughs> and uh, Bill, why don't you tell I'll us a little bit about how uh, the Arts Fuse is having a birthday and uh, we're celebrating? How are we celebrating? June is our birthday month, and usually the month before our birthday month, I have a spring, what's called the Spring Appeal. Um, we only ask for uh, funding or support from our readers, uh, you know, twice a year in the spring, and then we do something in the winter. And these are really important occasions because uh, we wish to pay our writers. We wish to maintain the site, which means that we have to be able to, you know, pay our webmaster and pay the various services we have to keep going. And so, um, so far, we've been very. The spring fundraisers have been very successful. And I'm hoping this is going to be another success. I put up the goal of $5,000 for this spring fundraiser. We made that last spring. 
Um, again, I wish people people may be amazed by Game of Thrones, but may I point out the amazing thing about the Archies is that given the relatively small budget that we have and the relatively small pay that we pay our writers, we should be paying them so much more. Look at the enormous amount of high quality reviews, features, interviews that we post, you know, every month in the Arts Fuse. So it seems to me it behooves you to, uh, to help support this effort by giving what you can so that we can pay our writers maybe a little bit more, maintain and sustain the magazine. I mean, there are various things that I'd love to be able to do if we have the support. I began a series of talking about criticism for the love of criticism, and there were two public discussions. I would love in the coming year to do more public discussions, bring in artists, bring in critics, bring in regular audience members to talk about the value of criticism and what it means to have criticism disappear, as we see criticism arts disappearing throughout the mainstream media, and even more and more difficult to find in, in, you know, in, a, in a good way, in a quality way, outside. Um, I'm do, currently doing a uh, mentorship program with the Somerville High School. We're having uh, critics mentor young high school students in writing reviews. Uh, with more money, with more funding, I could expand on that. There's no reason why we couldn't move beyond Somerville High School and deal with high schools throughout Boston and get students interested in thinking analytically, reasonably about the arts judge and judging them. And I think that's a valuable skill, a valuable craft, a valuable way of making them think about the arts, which I would love to be to be part of. So there, there are all kinds of things I would love to do, but it depends on, on the funding to be able to do it. So I'd appreciate you going. There's a page on the Arts Fuse uh, magazine, which gives various ways in which you can give either through Mighty Cause or, or PayPal. There's also on our Facebook page, I have a fundraiser going where you can also give through Facebook. Some people are not comfortable giving money through Facebook, so go to the page on the magazine and uh, you can give that way. And of course, you can always just write a check and send it. The address is there on both pages if you just wish to send some, some funding. And so please go to the art, uh, artsfuse.org uh, or check us out on social media to uh, help us with our spring appeal and keep the Arts Fuse going so we can keep bringing you uh, arts criticism. And, and the podcast as and well. The podcast I mean, one of the well. things that's new this year that I trumpet on the page is you guys and the podcast. And of course, a podcast needs to be fed so as you need to right. be fed, we, so. we we thank you for listening and uh if you'd like to support uh both the show and also just the arts views in general you can visit the podcast patreon page that's at patreon.com slash the arts views and if you donate a uh, hundred dollars or more to the arts views we will send you a t-shirt with a jonathan swift quote on the back with the john yes yeah right with the uh the point of your pen right with the, the point of your pen not, not the feather, feather. So thanks a lot for listening, guys. Uh, we've been joined today by the Arts Fuse Editor-in-Chief, Bill Marks, and Matt Hansen. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. <laughs>